Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where our listeners regularly hide Easter eggs in their code, and sometimes even on purpose. Well, I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you profitably scale from seven figures, which is really good, to eight and nine figures, which is amazingly great. We create premium valuation, profitable growth, and freedom so that you build a business you're proud of and create a life of impact that you love. Well, we are in the middle of Holy Week. Tomorrow's Good Friday and Easter Sunday is just a few days from now. You know, Easter has always been one of my favorite holidays, and I'm not sure if that's just because the days are getting longer or if it had something to do with spring break growing up, or maybe it was hide and seek, you know, puzzle solving aspect of it like that. It was always a, a lot of fun for me. Really took on significantly deeper meaning in high school as part of my faith journey. Some of you know I'm a Christian Christ follower. And for me, Easter is the other bookend to Christmas, where Christmas is the beginning of the story of God's rescue plan for humanity and the mess we've made and continue to make. Easter is the completion of that with Jesus restoring the broken relationship between God and man. And I know we have listeners with different beliefs. I have great friends with different faiths, some way, way different or no faith at all. And, and that's okay. I think it's really important to be able to have differences and be friends, whether that difference is faith or political ideology or whatever. You know, you never go wrong treating people well. And I'm never offended having conversations about things that really, really matter. And whether it's the same thing I believe or it's different. Some things around the way we celebrate Easter uh, around the world. You know, here in the U.S., we have marshmallow chicks and bunnies called peeps. I have seen those in a few other countries. My kids always love those. Never really understood that. It's definitely not my thing. Every day, one and a half million Cadbury cream eggs are produced. Uh, apparently, it's the most popular egg-shaped chocolate in the world and might be the only one. No, actually, it's not. Uh, actually, chocolate eggs have been made since 1873, which is quite a while, 150 years. And just a couple years after that, 1875, Cadbury started making the cream eggs. And so that's quite a while. It's a pretty good run for a product, right? I think I much prefer real eggs, though. Did you dye eggs or do you do that now? I did that growing up and my kids did as well. It was always a lot of fun making different things and like different colors and, and you know, coloring them with crayons and, and the wax. Didn't allow the color to soak in. And so you had some really cool designs and stuff. I'll bet you didn't know that that actually originated in Ukraine. The original tradition was called Pesanka, and it took off here in the U.S. thanks to immigrants sharing their traditions. And so while I'm thinking about it, please continue to pray for the people of Ukraine. We have friends and family and clients and partners in the region. It's been a, a really, really tough year. Last time I was there in Ukraine was for the 30-year independence celebration. It's over there, three different former Soviet republics that, that same time frame. I get to celebrate. And just a few months later, that freedom was put at risk and still is today. And speaking of prayer, did you know that pretzels are an Easter tradition from Germany? Where it is, is because pretzels, it's, it looks kind of like arms crossed in prayer. 
as common starting in the 50s to eat a pretzel on a hard-boiled egg on Good Friday. And But, you know, there's really no wrong reason or way to eat a soft pretzel. Yeah, I'm kind of craving one right now just thinking about this, you know. Uh, so what do you think? What is your favorite Easter tradition or memory? So send me a note and let me know. Well, our sponsor today is Champion Leadership Group. Get free growth tools and map out a plan to scale your SaaS business from seven to eight figures. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey using a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. Celebrate wins and quickly rebound from setbacks. Learn to do the right thing at the right time to achieve profitable growth, impact, and freedom. So unleash that growth for your SaaS at championleadership.com. Our founder on Tuesday was Luke Homan, SaaS founder, serial entrepreneur, and inventor, and five-time author. We talked about his new book, Software Profit Streams, which is all about nailing the pricing model for your SaaS, not just once, but throughout your business life cycle. Absolutely great conversation. Our expert guest last week, last Thursday, was Mickey Kennedy, founder of e-releases. Mickey and I had a great conversation about press release marketing and avoiding the dumb mistakes companies make with press releases. And I've done most of them. How about you? Well, if you missed either one of those, go back and give them a listen because both of them are fantastic episodes. And pick up Luke's book, Software Profit Streams, if you haven't done that yet. My guest this week is Scott Stouffer, five-time CEO and three-time founder. He is currently the CEO and founder of Scale Matters, delivering go-to-market operations, analytics, and insights to help businesses drive capital-efficient growth. And there's a word we're hearing a lot about here recently, capital-efficient growth. Scott took his first company, Visual Networks Public, in 2001 and grew it to a peak market cap of $3 billion. That's a pretty sweet valuation. Since then, Scott has focused much of his energy on early and growth stage tech companies, building quantitative data and process models that uncover waste, inefficiency, and friction in the go-to-market function. And we probably all have things like that in our businesses. His process worked so well that in six months at his last company, Salsa Labs, he reduced CAC 71% and cut the sales cycle time in half. Welcome the go-to-market master, Scott Stouffer. Hey, Scott, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Really uh, excited to be here with you. Tell me a little bit about Scale Matters and how that came sure. to be. Um, Scale Matters, um, company we started about three and a half years ago. The basic thing we're trying to do is help other early and growth stage tech companies get more effective and more efficient at sales and marketing. Kind of what's behind that, as you know, Capital is very precious yes. at, at the early stages. And, you know, once you get past seed financing, where probably until that point, a lot of the uh, investment has been in product and R&D. Uh, after that point, you start putting a very sizable portion of your capital into sales and marketing and trying to scale and acquire customers. Unfortunately, there tends to be a lot of ineffective and inefficient spend on uh, sales and marketing. You know, what that does is basically burns through this precious capital for small companies that can be kind of a killer because it can, you know, it can 
run through their runway before they've actually accomplished what they need to for larger companies. It just tends to be a valuation depressor. So we basically set out to use data and technology to help these companies become much more efficient, predominantly by being better able to identify where the inefficiencies are, where there's friction in their overall go-to-market motions. The genesis behind it, interestingly enough, um, before we got started, uh, you mentioned nonprofits. Our prior company was, um, we produced a CRM and a marketing automation platform that were purpose-built for nonprofit organizations. And we tended to sell to uh, kind of smaller nonprofits, not the big Goliaths, but um, these organizations are, you know, notoriously kind of low-paying organizations, right. but also high-touch, yes. right? Um, and as a result, I mean, the economics of serving those uh, organizations can be a little bit challenging. So it forced us to get really, really vigilant about how do we make it very efficient for us to bring these folks on as our customers, knowing that, you know, once we had them, there'd be a kind of a high touch relationship and, and that sort of thing. And we basically deconstructed our entire sales and marketing process, built models of it, rebuilt our technology stack so that we could measure it precisely and started producing some pretty significant data that our management team used to basically dial it in. And literally in about a year's time, we were able to uh, reduce what we call customer acquisition costs, CAC, right. CAC, uh, by about 70%. Wow. And shrink our sales cycle by almost 45%. And it really made the difference in terms of the outcome for that company ultimately. So scale matters is sort of an outgrowth of that. It, it, it's, it's our concept of productizing the work that we did at that prior company so that we can offer that kind of efficient growth to all these other companies out there. And that makes a lot of sense. And really looking at sales and marketing, not only quantitatively, but qualitatively. And so it's the, the combination of those two. So you want high volume, but you also want high value. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, we probably are heavy on the quantitative side. I mean, I think part of what we're trying to do is lead companies to be a little bit more science-like in the way that they, you know, manage their sales and marketing efforts. Um, because, you know, historically, you know, there's a lot of gunslinging that goes on and a lot of, you know, um, sort of flying blind, et cetera. But, but there's enough uh, wherewithal out there now to precisely measure this stuff that you can give the sales leaders and the marketing leaders the dials that they need to turn to make become very precise in the way they operate their uh, organizations. Uh, you know, you mentioned qualitative. There's there's also some work that that we're doing bridging between the qualitative and the quantitative, and, and specifically around messaging. Uh, so if you think about it kind of product positioning and messaging tends to be a fairly qualitative issue. Right. Um, and, you know, we see a lot of companies not really have that dialed in and it 
creates friction for them, uh, makes it harder for salespeople to sell. Potentially, they're spending money on marketing things that are bringing in customers that aren't really in their ideal customer profile just because the messaging isn't right. So we do a lot of work to actually statistically capture um, voice of prospect uh, out of call recordings. So if you think about, you know, most companies that have a sales motion nowadays are communicating with their prospects via Zoom or something like right. that, right? Not kind of going and meeting face-to-face with them. And, you know, so that presents an opportunity to actually capture that conversation. And we're leveraging some technology to be able to parse those conversations and statistically gather things like of all the different priorities that prospects talk about, kind of how do they stack rank? Uh, of all the different challenges they talk about, how do they stack rank? And, and so, so that helps our customers to basically begin to dial in their messaging a little bit better because they actually have unbiased, you know, right from the horse's mouth, statistical evidence of what matters. Right. And I think that's the greatest source of, of information is hearing it, not only oh. hearing it from the customer, but actually in their own words. Oh, yeah, that was very helpful. The, the, the trick is you have to have enough, um, you know, enough of a sample size because uh, uh, otherwise you risk, you know, if you talk to 10 people, you know, it only takes one person to kind of skew statistically what what might otherwise look different on a uh, representative sample of a thousand people. So it, that that concept works best when you have you know a velocity motion and you're having a lot of sales calls every week or every month type thing. That makes a lot of sense. Where do you see the biggest points of friction in uh, in offers, for example? I don't know that we look at a lot of friction in terms of what they're offering. I mean, sometimes the pricing and packaging of it, you know, how they bundle services or bundle their their offering can create some friction because they're potentially trying to force people to buy more than than what they actually need to buy. Um, But, you know, where we see friction in general in in the go-to-market operation, if you will, is probably six things jump to mind. We mentioned messaging. Right. Uh, and, and again, when the messaging isn't right, two things happen. One is you don't bring in customers who are in your ideal customer profile. Or two, you have a hard time closing those that are. A, a, a big area of friction or what I would call non-productive spend that we see is... Um, a lot of companies don't have the balance between what we call top of funnel and bottom of funnel, right? What do I mean by that? Most of these early and growth stage tech companies have too many salespeople relative to the lead support or top of funnel support they're giving these salespeople. So they end up with, you know, the vast majority of the salespeople well under quota. And then, of course, what happens then is the best salespeople who know they could knock the cover off the ball if the, if they were given the right opportunity end up leaving. So, so it's a very damaging cycle when you've got too many salespeople. And, and these companies would be better off taking some of that investment that they're putting into sales folks 
and you know repurposing that to top a funnel instead so that so they get that in balance every once in a while we see companies that are prolific at lead generation and then they don't have enough salespeople to actually follow up on those leads. So mm-hmm. the same same issue occurs, which is you're wasting money, right? You're wasting all this mar- these marketing dollars, generating all these top of funnel leads, but you don't have anybody to process them. So uh, so what, that's what we call it. Generally, we call it funnel imbalance. And, and that's a, um, a very common area where we see companies basically wasting uh, wasting a fair amount of money. Another area is uh, of, of friction is strategy. So think of the different ways. Let's take a B two B company. The, the different ways they might source prospective customers. Uh, they may do a lot of content marketing and, and SEO, trying to bring people organically into the website. They may uh, do digital advertising, paid search, Google Ads, maybe LinkedIn advertising. They may have an outbound prospecting motion where they have a team of you know sales development reps or business development reps cold calling. Most companies have sort of an idea of how much does it cost them to get a lead through these various techniques, but they don't have a very good idea of how much does it cost them to get a customer or to get a dollar of revenue. And so they haven't allocated generally their investments in an optimized fashion across these strategies, right? So that it's just another area where they're spending money, they're getting something for it, but it's not as um, optimized as it could be if they had a better understanding end to end of what each strategy is delivering in terms of return on investment. Another area of friction is just the time it takes to um, onboard new salespeople or new SDRs. It, it tends to be very long. The, um, the hit rate uh, with most companies is not particularly good in terms of, you know, maybe they have to hire three salespeople hoping that two of them will work out, right? So you end up, uh, again, just wasting a lot of money because that whole onboarding and recruiting process isn't necessarily dialed in. So those are just a couple of examples, but they add up to tremendous amounts of money. I mean, you know, it's not uncommon for, a, I don't know, a $25 million company that's maybe spending $10 million a year on sales and marketing, probably three to four million of that is completely non-productive. And, and that's that's really what we're trying to help these guys um, get past. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you're exactly right. And, and just even that last one, the the hiring process and getting salespeople up to speed. There's an expectation they're going to come in and it's going to take them six months to ramp, which I think is is way long anyway. But then that's really expensive. Is, three of them don't that's work optimistic out. for a lot of companies. Right. Yeah. How much runway do you have? You know, if you don't get it right the first time, then you know you're out of cash and now what? Yeah. 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 And it's it's a real issue, particularly for the kind of earlier stage companies that don't, you know, haven't had the um, fortune to go raise $30 million or something right now. Right, right. You know? And even the ones that do, I think you said that early on, they have too many people and inefficient 30 to 70% waste. Yeah, yeah. That's expensive in itself. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's just crazy. 
So where do you see marketing uh, working well? I mean, what is working today? How do, how do you get great ROI? It depends on what your expectation out of marketing is. Um, you know, there certainly has been a shift to where a lot of awareness happens in social communities and other areas where nobody actually can measure it. And so, so I do think good marketing requires a little bit of a um, leap of faith in terms of being willing to invest in brand, if you will, brand and awareness. You, you know, probably five, I don't know, three to six years ago, there, there had been this big move away from brand Right. And, and all focused on demand generation, right? Um, because people were thinking, well, there's a lot of technology that we can now measure all this stuff so we can dial it in better. But, you know, most of the uh, venues like web forms, et cetera, for capturing that demand is already kind of late in the buying process for a prospective customer. It's true. And, and so, so to me... Good marketing is making sure that you're known, uh, people recognize value prop in whatever circles these people are, you know, learning from. And, and we, and we do see that quite a bit. You know, people starting to put more investment in, um, stuff that maybe isn't necessarily measurable, but it happens much, but, but its impact is much earlier in somebody's, um, cycle to start to think about buying something. I can tell you some things we see that aren't particularly good or healthy. Yes, um, that, that's equally as good. One is, um, uh, are you familiar with the revenue operations, uh, the space yes. term? Okay, so, so you know, really just a few years ago, you used to have people who were sales operations, right? These are the people that administer the CRM and other sales tools. You have marketing operations people that are the people administering the marketing automation platform. You know, over the last three or four years, there's a recognition that uh, having those operations uh, folks sort of functionally separated is part of what creates a bunch of data silos within organizations. And, and so you, you go into a lot of sales and marketing uh, groups and they're constantly bickering over data. You know, marketing saying, oh, we created this many lead sales. Because no, you didn't. you didn't create anything like that, right? right. And, and so there's been this whole move to court, sort of centralize the operations, the data side, et cetera, so that it could be unbiased, which has been awesome. I mean, it really is for, for the companies that truly are pulling it out from under sales or marketing and putting it either under finance or under some central operations function, it, it really is beneficial. What we haven't seen happen is a commensurate change in the way sales teams and marketing teams are incentivized. And so um, you, you would ideally like, you know, the people who are collectively responsible for generating revenue You'd ideally like them to all be incentivized on new bookings, 
on the efficiency of it, right? So it's one thing we've got to, we've got to get this much new business. Right. It's another thing is, and it should only cost us this much to get it, right? And maybe this much needs to be 30 or 40% year over year growth. But, but if everyone's incentivized to the same core metrics, then you get people working together better. What we still see in so many companies, unfortunately, is, you know, they've, they've moved a little bit from, you know, incentivizing marketing on number of leads to saying now, uh, we need to incentivize marketing on, marketing generated pipeline. So they're just moving a little bit further down the funnel, but they're still not, it still does not cause the sales and marketing teams to come together and work together. And instead what we see is um, marketing people spending an awful lot of energy, emotional and otherwise trying to make sure they're getting credit. Uh, and it, it's just damaging. It takes away from the, the, the work that needs to be done. So that's an area where I think companies still need to evolve is to get, you know, force further alignment through the incentivizing uh, mechanisms they have. And that makes a lot of sense because it's the greatest management principle in the world. It's people do what they're incented to do. And if marketing yeah. is incented to get those leads and, and the only way they get incented is or get it paid is if they get credit for them, that's going to be the thing that they chase rather than yeah. really getting those things aligned across the organization. I think that's a really good insight of looking at compensation and making sure that your, your compensation is driving the behaviors and the outcomes that you want. Yeah. And, and it's tough because you know, in theory, you'd like sales and marketing to have almost identical compensation structures. Right. Um, but they're but not. there's a lot of precedent in the way that you pay salespeople. And I think it would be culture shock to go to the marketing world and say, OK, well, now half of your annual income is going to be at risk as well. It's much easier said than done. Uh, and I, I get that. But but there needs to be some creative thinking around this. Well, if they don't like that, you have to think about, well, you know, what kind of quality of leads are, are you driving? Because you have marketing qualified leads, you have sales qualified leads, and are those the same thing? As marketing is saying, we're doing this, and sales is saying, we're getting this. Do, you know, if then those numbers don't match up, you, know, you end up with people pointing fingers at each other. Uh, exactly. And that's why ultimately you should look at what the end result is. Uh, but anyway. I like that. When you don't have, a, one of the things I liked that you said earlier was really mining those calls for uh, customer language. And what happens when you have that message mismatch where you're, you're really pitching one thing and saying it one way, but uh, the clients are, are not, not really getting it or prospects are not really receiving it that same way? I think the downside of that shows up a, a number of places. Think about where, where is it that you're messaging? Um, potentially on your website. So people come to the website. Well, first, first of all, what causes people to come to the website? Maybe an ad, right? So first piece of messaging is maybe an ad. If the ad is, um, if the copy in the ad is attracting a type of prospect that isn't actually a good fit for your products, 
that doesn't do you any good, right? So that's that's the first thing is bringing in the wrong people uh, because your messaging isn't quite right. The other is not getting the right people, right? Which means um, maybe your website. So, so a, a perfectly good prospect comes to your website if your messaging isn't speaking in the way they think about what's important to them. You know, they'll look at it quickly. I mean, attention spans are not very long these days. and People aren't going to go through a big investment to really understand what people do. So your website tends to be, you know, the first first picture that people get. And if they look at it and they go, well, this isn't relevant to me or this doesn't resonate, even if they would have been a great customer for what you do, if you haven't messaged it in a way that they get that, they'll just move on to the next one, right? Right. Uh, and and the, same, the same concept, we see it in sales messaging. So, you know, I mean, traditional sales approach is you start with a discovery call and, you know, that's less about messaging and more about trying to uncover kind of priorities and pain and, you know, give yourself the context so you can actually match your offering to um, something that's important to the customer. But but then maybe the second call is when you start talking about what you do or, or it's a demo or something, right? And there, again, if you're not talking about it in terms that the customer thinks like, you know, or in phrases that the customer thinks about, you know, it's just going to miss. It, 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 it. And the reason it'll miss is it requires too much mental processing on the customer to connect those dots. And, and that's that's really the, the, why messaging is so important uh, to get dialed in is because attention spans are short and, and you just don't want to do something that requires um, mental processing burden on the customer. And that makes a lot of sense. In my book, I actually write that prospects won't connect the dots and, and we shouldn't expect them to. Right. But I think we, right. we do have that expectation. Right. We're That's what we're paying. Right, right. Yeah, we should be doing that. And and I think that brings up something really interesting. I mean, you kind of talked about it before, was just kind of the different incentives. So lead count versus revenue. So if you're bringing in the wrong leads, then marketing gets credit for those and saying, hey, I'm bringing in all these. And then sales says, well, these leads are terrible. I can't close any of them. So it's it's that uh, that mismatch again in uh, in incentive because things are siloed. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and and then you start getting into okay, well, how are we going to define quality, right? Um, and I mean, part of the other problem is that at some point people start gaming stuff. An example could be: uh, I feel like I'm um, you know hitting on marketing folks, and I don't mean to at all. <laughs> But, you know, if, if they come to a conclusion that they get paid on whatever MQLs are, well, they may decide to implement some scoring mechanism within their marketing automation platform that is a little generous in terms of how it scores leads so that, you know, it looks like it's being done by technology, but 
but they set up the models, right? And so you end up with more things showing up as MQLs than probably realistically should. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example of that, of, of that sure. or, or try to a little bit more what I mean. In our way of thinking, lead quality is driven by indications of fit, intent, and engagement. So, you know, you can kind of figure out fit, right? Because you know, well, here's the profile of companies that that are in our ideal customer profile, right? So you can you can kind of get a view of fit, but for intent or engagement, that requires action to have been taken by the prospect. By intent, I mean purchase intent. The, the fact that somebody may sign up to two or three of your webinars doesn't indicate any intent. It, all it simply means is you guys maybe put out some decent content that uh, people that like to continuously learn have found you guys to be good content creators, so they, they go, pay, go participate in your webinars, right? Right. But many marketing folks will set up their scoring algorithms. So if you sign up or attend a webinar, well, that increases your score. And it really doesn't. It doesn't give you any more indication of intent. And, and so, you know, that's where I say people are maybe a little generous. Uh, you know, somebody downloads a white paper. So what? I do it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that I'll go to whoever produces good content because I want to learn. Right. Right. And it doesn't mean I'm about to buy anything, you know. So it's that kind of thing is is thinking about what actions have the prospect taken that indicate intent as the driver of what kind of quality of a lead it is, rather than simply, you know, what resources of ours have they um, consumed. And that makes a lot of sense. Do you think that demand generation, just a focus on that, has really led to a bunch of low intent leads so that we're tracking maybe a vanity metric of we have, you know, this many downloads, but it really doesn't translate to revenue? Oh, for sure. Now, it's gotten better, right? I mean, probably two years ago or three years ago, I'd say it felt like it was really bad. And, and now, People are starting to recognize, you know, that this this dema marketing demand gen thing, which was supposed to be holy grail, it, it, it can be very, very powerful and productive. But it's, you know, it's not just about quantity. So absolutely. And I think, you know, because I think a lot of people, you know, what happens is if, if you produce a bunch of garbage leads and then the salespeople start to work on them, realize they're garbage, then they just won't, you know, then you suddenly get to where so many companies have gotten to, which is marketing says they're producing all these leads, sales refuses to follow up on them, right? Because they don't want to have to bang through 200 to find the one that actually is decent. Right. And, and so, you, you know, and that's, that's a classic area where we talk about is friction, right? You just have people spending money on stuff that isn't going anywhere. But anyway, it, you know, it's, we're, we're all evolving. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know, yes. It's all iterative 
process. But but there's there's still a lot of people that go through the same motions, unfortunately, and, and haven't kind of uh, gotten out of that. So if we're really looking for a data driven sales process, you know, what does that look like, and how do we use that to drive action? Yeah, so I mean, it's I mean, a couple of different ways it looks. I, I can tell you, sort of what we have settled on as an approach is we basically refer to it as conscious or intentional iteration, right? Because getting optimized at this stuff is, is a series of iterations that all of us go through. No, no company is born and has this finely honed sales and marketing machine. Uh, so we get there over time. What we're trying to do is get people to get there more consciously than they would otherwise. And we start by saying, model the motion. So we want companies to think very clearly and at a detailed level, what is our process look like? And now let's model that. So for example, if we're gonna use outbound prospecting, SDRs, how long does it take them to round? How much activity are we expecting them to do? Let's just say the activity is simply phone calls. Right? It's, today, it's phone calls, LinkedIn messaging, email, all this other stuff, right? But for simplicity, let's say it's just phone calls. How many phone calls are you expecting them to make a day? What percentage of those phone calls do you expect to end up in conversations? What percentage of those conversations do you expect to end up in a meeting set? I'm sorry, of the meetings that get set, what percentage of them will the people actually show up to the meeting so that you have a meeting held, right? So the first thing you can do is establish a model based on those sort of um, metrics and conversion rates that says, if we want to generate 20 meetings held a month, we need to have this many SDRs. Uh, right. So, so it, it's forcing the, this notion of modeling forces people to memorialize their assumptions behind how they're going to acquire customers. Uh, right. And then you go further down the funnel uh, of the meetings that are held. What percentage of them after the salesperson has this initial discovery meeting? Are we likely to have the salesperson say, this is a legitimate sales opportunity. I'm going to move it in the pipeline. Right. right? And then what are the four or five steps or eight steps that need to happen from that point to getting them to a deal closure? Uh, to me, a good model builds is effectively a spreadsheet that has each of these steps documented. It has expectations of conversion rate between each step of cycle time between each step, right? So if from the time we have hold the initial discovery meeting to the time we have a deep dive demo, uh, we're expecting that to average 22.2 days, right? Or something like that. So anyway, point number one is you've got to capture your assumptions into a model at a detailed level because that is the context against which you can evaluate your actual performance. So step number one, model the motion. Step number two, measure the motion. So that means that you've got to set up your tech stack, your, your CRM, your marketing automation platform, your cadence tool, whatever sales and marketing tools you use. You have to set them up consciously in a way 
that you know you can measure every step of that model. And you have to set up processes or mechanisms to help ensure that that data stays clean. Because right? one of the problems that a lot of companies end up with is there's, you know, there's kind of a cavalier attitude towards how salespeople enter stuff in the CRM. Of course. So you end up with just data that's not particularly useful to analyze. Um, so, again, if, if you're wanting to be good at this, uh, at a data-driven approach, you have to commit to data hygiene. Now, you'll make a mistake if you think it's all you're going to get there entirely by placing the burden on salespeople to comply better, right? So right. instead, you need to be somewhat uh, innovative about, well, how can we automate some of this stuff? How can we infer uh, how this piece of data should be populated so that we aren't putting excess burden on the salespeople to do that, right? Because the, the more burden that you put on the salespeople to do administrative tasks, entering stuff in the CRM, the more likely that data is not going to be very good. It's part of the reason why we like uh, grabbing all that information out of call recordings. Is that, again, it relieves the salesperson of the burden of capturing who are we competing against, right? What are the prospect priorities? We don't need that. We got it all from the call recording. So model the motion, measure the motion. And then the third part is basically analyze it. And, you know, this is where, you know, earlier stage companies are at a big disadvantage because there, there will be a lot of data produced by your go-to-market motion. Somebody has to have the time and ability to sit there and stare at it and say, what does this mean, right? Uh, think of it like um, if you had a really high-resolution MRI of some, some injury, you need the radiologist to look at it and say, well, here's what's actually wrong with you. Right, here's what right. And most of these companies, you know, you can't really expect the head of sales or head of marketing to do that because they usually just don't have the time. In many cases, they aren't really analytical, so they don't necessarily have that skill set. So, so this is where you try to, and this is where Scale Matters comes into play a lot, is you know, our software platform is built as an analytical platform to kind of ingest all this go-to-market data and make some sense out of it. Um, and, and then we also offer analyst services for those companies that aren't large enough yet. But, but you need to, you, you know, it's a critical step, right? Uh, model the motion, measure the motion, analyze the results. And it's through that analysis that a company that's truly data-driven will then decide how to iterate. And, and, and so it, it's not a very elaborate thing, right? It's really three steps, model, measure, and analyze. Right. Uh, but companies have to commit to that if they really want to be uh, data-driven. Um, I, I know I'm going on a little filibuster, but I think it might be useful. Um, it's important to understand that not all companies are ideal to be data-driven. And, and why do I say that? Because some companies don't have enough data. So, for example, if you're an early-stage company and you have one salesperson and you're trying to, um, you're going after whales 
So you'll be happy getting one or two customers all year, which means you're probably only talking to five or eight prospective customers in a year. You don't need a bunch of technology and stuff to track all that, right? It's easy enough for the sales leader, the CEO to keep track of all that. When it's not scalable is when you've got a velocity motion, right? You're trying to you, you sell something for 5,000 bucks a year. You want to bring in 300 customers this year across 10 salespeople, right? Then, then there's a lot of data. That, that is being produced and it's too hard for somebody to manually keep that in their head. That's when it becomes important to be data-driven. So not everybody should strive to be data-driven because in some, in some motions, qualitative judgment might make more sense, actually. And that makes a lot of sense. It's really having that context for the, the data and being able to interpret that and yeah. if, if well, you and don't have enough, enough of it, data, then there's no context. Having enough data that, you know, it's representative because otherwise, you know, you'll make judgment calls on a sample size that's not really um, high confidence. That makes sense. Where can people find out more about you and about Scale Matters online? Um, scalematters.com, S-C-A-L-E-M-A-T-T-E-R-S. It's easy enough. And... uh we do some, uh, we've done some interesting podcasts ourselves that we think, um, you know, provide some good insights and are helpful content for companies that are trying to get a little bit more um, sophisticated on, you know, being data driven on the go to market side. Very good. And we'll be sure and link that in the show notes. Scott, I've really Appreciate enjoyed it. our conversation today. Jeff, thank you. I really enjoyed it as well. And I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Thanks, Scott. All right. I know. Thanks again, Scott, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. You can learn more about Scott and Scale Matters at scalematters.com because scale really does matter, especially in today's economic environment. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Please subscribe and follow us there. Everyone who subscribes this week can magically deduct 10 pounds next time you get on the scale because that scale doesn't matter. Only scaling your SaaS revenue is, does. That's what matters. Join us next week on our SaaS Fuel Founder Series for one of my favorite bootstrap founders of all time, Bridget Harris, co-founder of YouCanBookMe.com. Bridget leads a team of over 30 people in a multi-million pound, yeah, multi-million pound like British pounds, multi-million pound profitable business with 22,000 customers and over a million people making bookings every month. It's a great solution and just a fantastic company. Their culture there is unreal. She's done a great job in building that company. And then next Thursday, from a trailer park to Sunset Boulevard, Jeremy Redman has built three six-figure and one seven-figure no-code tech companies from nothing. He is founder and CEO of Task Magic, which is automation software for small business. So I will see you next time and happy Easter, y'all. Have a great rest of your week. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. 
Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.